0: Merry Christmas to you. As we celebrate the gift of our Savior this week, gather together to do that. If you would, this morning, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We began that last week. If you're using a Pew Bible there, it's on page 573 in the Pew Bible, Isaiah chapter 9. just doing this short advent series here, Christmas series. Looking at he shall be called and looking at these four titles here and Isaiah and then the evening's looking at some different titles of Jesus that are used in the scriptures. Let's pray before we open God's word and hear from him this morning. Father, we are thankful that already this morning that we have heard the glorious truth that you sent your Son into this world for sinners. We're thankful that we, each sitting here this morning, are sinners in need of a Savior and that there has been a Savior that has been provided for us, in your beloved Son. We do pray that as we think upon this text this morning, as we hear it read and as we hear it preached, that you would grip us with this glorious truth, we would find that we are stirred in love and affection, and knowledge and understanding, in desire and hope, all in Christ Jesus. Work in our midst, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, this is a holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. You will remember from last week that Israel has been and is in a time of great darkness and great disillusion and great sin. Remember that that has been true within the nation of Israel as it has wandered away from its God and as it has begun to worship false idols and as it has been gripped by sin towards one another and towards their God. But it's also true that it has been on the outside of Israel, not only from within but from without, where they are being threatened by the Assyrian kingdom, which will eventually come and conquer the nation and take off many of the Israelites and scatter them across the ancient world. And so last week we looked at this, at Isaiah, in the midst of all of this darkness and all of this seemingly hopelessness, he offers hope. And the hope is a prophecy, a prophecy of a child that is going to be born The child that he says is going to be born and the government shall rest upon his shoulders and he shall sit upon the throne of David and there he shall sit and reign upon that throne forevermore. And then he tells us the four titles linked to this warrior king who is going to come and sit upon the throne of David. Last week looked at that first title that he would be called Wonderful Counselor. What I want to do this morning is look at this title, Mighty God, and then Christmas Eve we will look at the title Everlasting Father, and then finally next Sunday morning we'll look at the title Prince of Peace. So this morning as we begin this Christmas week, we're going to look at Mighty God. As we discussed last week, you'll notice that with each of these titles, there is a noun and there is a modifier, the noun here being God and the modifier, the attribute being mighty. And so I'm going to look at that in these two parts. This will shape our sermon this morning, how we look at this text. We'll look at the fact that he is God, the noun, and then look at the fact that he is mighty, the adjective. But first, the noun, Isaiah here uses the term El. That's the the language that he uses, the Hebrew word El for God here. And throughout the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah uses the term El, he uses it exclusively to speak of God. He never uses it to speak of some lesser being. When he ascribes El to it, he is speaking of God. He doesn't ever use El hyperbolically. He doesn't ever use El. in some kind of metaphorical way. He is being quite clear here in this prophecy. When he's speaking about this child that is to be born, he's speaking of him being divine. This child is God. God in flesh. In fact, it's the same title he ascribes to God just a chapter later in chapter 10, verse 21. This child is God. I told this story maybe seven or eight years ago, so it's fair game again in my book. Uh, But it was, uh, I was in college. I was a newly minted Christian, had come to Saving Faith only recently, maybe been a Christian for about 18 months, give or take, and... I was in a philosophy class, an introduction to philosophy class, and the philosophy professor was lecturing on I don't know what because I was busy busy doodling like everybody else in class. Uh, But then he started on a kind of tangent speaking about Jesus. And I perked up. And I looked around the room and noticed that everybody else perked up, our professors speaking about Jesus. And as he went on to speak about Jesus, he talked about the fact that what he believed was a fact, that the New Testament writers, he said, were the ones that had attributed to Jesus divinity, that he was divine, that they made this up upon Jesus's death, and so that there would be some kind of credibility to them and what they were writing and what they were saying. And then he made this statement to the class. He said, Jesus never claimed to be God. Now, I was a newly minted Christian. I had more zeal than knowledge, but I had a lot of zeal. And so I couldn't let that lie. And just instinctively and immediately was much more outspoken then. I jumped up in class and I yelled back at him while I looked at the rest of the class Yes, he did! But here's the deal. If that philosophy professor had, at that moment, called me on it and said, Jason, show me. Where did Jesus claim to be divine? I wouldn't have known where to turn. I would have had to sit back down. I had no clue. Is what my professor claimed to be the case truly the case? Is it just in this passage, this Isaiah 9, that we have claim of Christ being divine? That He's truly God? Well, I want to start in the Old Testament Scriptures with you. Just a few examples to suffice, to whet the appetite. You can study more of this later. But you'll know that just previous, Isaiah chapter nine was Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Maybe the most famous prophecy regarding Christ in the Old Testament. You hear it often at Christmas time. "Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel." That is, God with us." Or you think of that other famous prophecy of Christ, Micah 5:2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephra, you are too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is from of old, from ancient of days. That is, he existed from of old. This one that is to be born into the world, that is to come in the city of Bethlehem, to come of the tribe of Judah, this very small clan of the tribe, He's going to be born and He's going to rule over the nation and yet this one that is be, is to be born is of ancient of days. That is, He existed even before He was born. Psalm 1 makes the same point as Jesus, you will remember, clarifies this when He asks the Pharisees how they themselves dealt with this text where in Psalm 110, that messianic psalm, David speaking, says, The Lord said to my Lord, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Here is David, the king of kings, the great king, who is saying, God, Yahweh, said to my Lord. David is speaking about one that would come after him, a descendant of his that would sit upon the throne That was his throne. And David calls this one that would come after him, my Lord. David, why would one come in after you, call you? Why would you call him my Lord? He should be calling you his Lord. Because David's answer is, as though he comes after me in the flesh, he preceded me in the flesh. He's my Lord. He's ancient of days. The New Testament writers are not shy about proclaiming Jesus as God in the flesh. John 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John goes on to say in verse 14, as you know, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John has no qualms whatsoever in calling this word, this eternal word, that was God and was with God and is God. He says that if that word became flesh. He has no problem saying that. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Paul, a Jew of Jews, a man of complete and utter learning that knew the Old Testament Scriptures was a Jew and Jew through, a Jew so fully... That he, before he came to know Christ, hated Christians. He persecuted Christians, he was rounding up Christians to take them off to jail. He would stand by as Stephen, the first martyr of the faith, is stoned to death. And yet Paul, upon his conversion, will say this in Colossians 1:15, what any Jew would have only considered blasphemy. He Meaning Jesus is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is God. That's great. You have Different Old Testament prophets that are saying that this Messiah to come would be God. You have New Testament writers after Jesus saying that he was God. But what about my professor's claim? What about his claim that Jesus never claimed to be God? Is that true? Well, the Jews of Jesus' day thought very differently from my professor. In John 10, 30, Jesus said this. He said, I and the Father are one. Now, you've got to be in a Jewish mindset to understand this. For the Jews, what separated them from all of the other nations of the earth, all the other religions on the face of the earth, was the great Shema. That was their text. Deuteronomy 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here is Jesus standing before them, and he says to them, I and the Father are one. And the Jews know immediately what this means. And they pick up stones to stone him. Why? Well, they tell us. They tell us. They said to Jesus, We are going to stone you for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They knew what he was claiming. In John 14, just a few chapters later, Jesus will say, when Philip asks to see the Father, Jesus will respond to Philip, and he'll say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? I and the Father are one. Another claim is found in Mark 2. Jesus says, you remember, to that paralytic man that is brought before him, he will say, your sins are forgiven. And the Jews know immediately as well what this means. They question Jesus' declaration of forgiveness of sins and And then they will come to the wrong conclusion. They say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Now, why would they say he's blaspheming? They say this, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They know that the claim to forgive sins is a claim to deity, who can forgive sins? No one but God. And when the Jews rebuke Jesus about this, blasphemy is no small charge. Claiming to be God is no small charge. When they rebuke Jesus about this, Jesus doesn't respond to them and say, Ah, oh, you're right. You know what? I don't have a right to forgive sins, and I shouldn't have said that. That's not what he does. No, his response to them is, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And the paralytic did. He forgives sins. And why does he forgive sins? Because he is God. My professor may have known what philosophers taught, but he didn't know what Jesus taught, he didn't know what Jesus claimed. It is true throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. It is true throughout the New Testament Scripture writers. And it is true in the very life of Jesus. Claim after claim after claim. We could spend our entire morning going through this. He is God. And He is God. God in flesh. I want you to think upon God with me. If someone was to come to you and they were to say, Define God for me, describe God, give me the details of who God is. How would you do that? We could start all kinds of places. We could say, like Isaiah says, that his thoughts are above our thoughts, his ways are above our ways. His wisdom, as we saw last week, is on a different plane. His knowledge knows no end as he makes clear to Job. His holiness and his righteousness is without blemish. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is glorious. His love surpasses knowledge. And we could go on and on and on. God is beyond our ability to articulate. We can't Define him. We will literally praise him for all of eternity because we can define him. When the psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Give him the glory that is due his name. It's a charge to them to give praise for all of eternity. Give him the glory that is due his name. How do you give him the glory that is due his name? You can't. You just have to keep on praising. Because you can't define it. You can't describe it. You can't define it. And yet it's this one. It's this God. God sent God to become flesh. And Isaiah says that God sent God. He was born into this world. He says for us. For us. These are not abstract titles here. These are titles of him as he is in relation to us. He's our wonderful counselor. He's our mighty God. He's our everlasting father. He's our prince of Augustine, or the greatest theologian the church has ever had, said it this way, this one born for us, this God, he said, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, and the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep the way be tired on its journey, the truth might be accused of false witnesses, the judge of the living and the dead be judged by a mortal judge, justice be sentenced by the unjust, the teacher be beaten with whips, the vine be crowned with thorns, the foundation be suspended on wood, the strength might be made weak, that he who makes well might be wounded, that life might die. He was made man to suffer these and similar undeserved things for us that he might free us who were undeserving. God sent God. He came in the flesh to save sinners in desperate need of a Savior. God. Second, notice what Isaiah highlights about this God born in flesh. He says, mighty God. That's the adjective, mighty. Now, he could have selected all kinds of different adjectives. He could have said... Wonderful Counselor, Holy God. He could have said, Wonderful Counselor, Righteous God. He could have said, Holy Counselor, Loving God. He could have said, Holy Counselor, Good God. But he chooses mighty. Why is it that it's mighty in this prophecy? Mighty God. Because of the great darkness they were facing. Listen, when you got trials and you got troubles and you got darkness on the horizon, and you got darkness in the midst, and it looks like every adversary is against you, what you want is you want mighty. This is mighty God. It is one thing for him to be wondrous counselor that is absolutely glorious, as we saw last week, that he has all wisdom, that he has all knowledge that he dispenses this wisdom and knowledge. But really, it doesn't matter unless he is a mighty God. What does it matter if he's got great wisdom, if he can't bring that wisdom to bear as mighty God? Now, this makes all the difference. He accomplishes what he sets his wisdom upon. I want you to think with me about how different his might or his power is from what we often describe as might and power. I want to consider it just in two ways this morning in the brief time we have together. One, his might or his power is different in, we can see it in the way that he created the heavens and the earth. Think about this mighty God, and He creates all things in heaven and in earth. And now this mighty God, the same one, the same might, the same power, comes into the world as this baby. And and this baby contains this might, and this power is marked by it. All things created through Him, John and Paul tell us. All things created through Him. You and I, we are often amazed when Someone invents something, some man invents an automobile or invents a new vaccine or comes up with some new math solution or math problem or some kind of dynamic like that. And I don't mean this tritely, but all they're doing is discovering That's all that they're doing. It's amazing, and yet all we're doing is discovering new ways of putting things together or discovering new things previously unknown by us when we so-called invent something. But that's not true of mighty God. No, mighty God created all things out of nothing by the word of His power. All things out of nothing. There's no rearranging. There's no discovering. There's no putting things together. There's no figuring it out. His inherent power creates all things. His might, his strength is on a different plane, it's wholly different. And this child born is mighty. Second, when we consider his power not being like ours, to think about it like this, his power is not something distinguishable from his employing that power. Let me say it another way. God is never not acting. He's never not in Motion. He doesn't undergo any change like we do when we exercise power. If I decide this morning that with all of this power and strength and might that I have, that I'm going to break this pulpit this morning. Well, I go from a state of passivity to now I'm moving into action and I'm going to break this pulpit. I'm going to exercise my might and my power. That is never true of God. God in his might and his power is always active. He is, as theologians said, he is pure act. An analogy that's often been used in church history is of the sun. The man is standing outside and all of a sudden, he feels the warmth of the sun, and then a moment later, he doesn't feel the warmth of the sun. The, the The change is not in the sun, but rather it's the man being acted upon by the sun. There is simply a change in the person. So, power in God is not a thing. It, it can't be distinguished from Him. It doesn't change. It just is Him. He is power. He is might, constantly consistently, everlastingly. And that means that what He wills, He accomplishes by His power. His might is infinite. It is sovereign. It's absolute. It's independent. There is no might like His. All other might, all other power that you and I look look at, it's derived. There was a time that that thing did not have that power. And that power can diminish and it can increase. It's not true of Him. He has all might and all power everlastingly. And all the might and all the power that you and I witness in the universe, it is all but derived power. It's subordinate to Him. Because He alone is pure power, absolute might even Satan is powerless without God granting him permission to act. As Luther once said, even the devil is God's devil. And nothing has power but from God, and all can only do what God in his sovereignty allows them to do, and this baby born into the world is mighty God. He has power. That power. And this baby has grown, and he matures, and he grows into the man. Jesus Christ is standing there before Pontius Pilate, and all of these accusations are being. Lobbed at Jesus, this baby born, this mighty God born into the world, and Pilate will then say to him as Jesus stands there silently, you remember Pilate says to him, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? A Mighty God, standing there in human flesh without any hesitation, without any qualification. He says in reply to Pilate, he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Why? Because he is God Almighty. He is mighty God. What's the application for the Israelites and for us? Well, three things I want to highlight this morning. First, do not take counsel from your fears. Do not take counsel from your fears. When you read the stories of martyrs facing their deaths throughout church history, whether that is Polycarp or whether that is Latimer and Ridley, I read of some of those in modern day, like was represented from the part of the world that was the Advent reading was from this morning, the Far East. How is it that they they stand so often in courage when they're standing before lions and they're standing before fire and they're standing before swords? How is it that they do that? Because they know. They know that mighty God is with them. They know that their Savior who was born into this world is mighty God. And they know that there is nothing in their world, nothing in their backyard, nothing that is happening to their life that has not been ordained by this mighty God. And so there's a rest. There's a peace. As Jesus said, nothing has authority but from Him, so we don't take counsel from our fears. Where do we take counsel from? We take it from the wonderful counselor, who is also mighty God. I'm not sure who said it first. It's been attributed to various people throughout church history. It's wonderfully true. That quote, one with God is a majority. One with God is a majority. That is so very true. You can't lose with God. That's why Paul will erupt in Romans 8 where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And you say, but Paul, everyone is against us. It feels like the entire world is against us. The Israelites... Standing in this day would have felt like everything and everyone is against us. Paul, what do you mean? If God is for us, who can be against us? Are there enemies? Of course. Jesus had enemies upon his very birth into the world. There is an earthly king that is seeking his death in Bethlehem. And his death will be sought all the way to the very cross where he will die upon the cross. Are there enemies in this world? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what is Isaiah trying to press home? And what is it that Paul is echoing in Romans 8? It is that you and I are to understand that all of these enemies can only go so far and no further. Because they're on a chain. And God holds the other end of the chain. And so you don't take counsel from your fears. Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If this mighty God who was born into the world and lived and suffered and died that cruel death upon the cross and triumphed over the grave was resurrected on the third day, if He has crushed the foes of death, and Satan, and sin, and hell, Paul's question is, how can he not give us everything? The Father sent his only Son, how can he not give us everything? The Son triumphed over every single one of our greatest foes, how can he not give us everything? Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All His and our enemies will but be a footstool on that last day. Why? Because He has all might. He's a mighty God. And so you and I do not take counsel from our fears. We take counsel from Him. Second, rely upon this mighty God by being patient. Rely upon this mighty God by being patient. Think about these Israelites. They're trapped in darkness. There's darkness on the horizon. They know what is coming. And Isaiah gives them this prophecy that now they're going to have to wait to see realized. And so much of relying upon the mighty God can be summed up in that one word, patience. God's people wait upon God. We wait for the slow flow of providence. A great portion of our faith is just simply waiting. That is much of faith. Just simply waiting. Waiting and trusting in the midst of that waiting. Abraham waiting for that promised child that was given to him. Israel waiting for 400 years while they are in slavery in Egypt, and then waiting another 400 more years from the prophet Malachi until John the Baptist comes upon the scene. Relying upon the mighty God requires patience. That's often what is called for in faith. Just wait upon me, trust upon me patient. So much sin is born from impatience. Seems like no accident to me that we get to those great Advent texts in the beginning of the Gospels that what Luke does is two of the great Advent texts that he li- highlights, stories he likes, highlights at the beginning of his Gospel are two great saints who were just waiting patiently. Patiently and faithfully. You have Simeon, this old man, and you have Anna, this old woman, and they're just waiting. They've heard the promise. They know the promise. And they're just being faithful where they're at, with who they are, with what they have been given, and they're waiting for the promise to be realized. Fear often drives us to take matters into our own hands. Sarah offers Hagar, her servant, because she's fearful and thus takes matters into her own hands. Aaron will create a golden calf because he's fearful and he takes matters into his own hands. Saul offers an unholy sacrifice because he's fearful and so takes matters into his own hands. Peter will draw a sword because he's fearful and so he takes matters into his own hands. Much of faith is just waiting, being patient. Now, cowardice can surely hold people back when they should go forward, but can also propel people forward when they should hold back. And it is often, more often the case, when things seem desperate, that it is the latter rather than the former. When trials seem to be adding up and darkness seems to be descending, like these Israelites are experiencing, like many feel like we're experiencing in this day, then we begin to act in fear, try to take matters up in our own hands. What's interesting to me is that in our day, this has been true, seems like from my perspective, on both ends of the spectrum, whatever spectrum you want to lay out. Fear tends to push people to extremes on spectrums. That makes sense because everything then either becomes black or becomes white or becomes white or becomes black and then I know clearly what I am to do. If it's completely black, then I know I'm supposed to do this. If it's completely white, then I know I'm supposed to do this. And not only do I know I'm supposed to do this, I know what I'm supposed to tell you you're supposed to do. Times of trouble, people often immediately move to the extremes because it's a way of taking things in our own hands. I'm all for clarity, but not when we take matters into our own hands. Sarah had such clarity. Aaron had such clarity. Saul had such clarity. But you see where our clarity is supposed to come from the wonderful counselor, and we wait for him. And we act in accordance with him. And we seek to walk faithfully to him. Wonderful counselor has unrivaled wisdom. and he exercises it as mighty God, and so it cannot fail. You see, they're all tied together, right? He's wonderful counselor. He has all wisdom. You want that wisdom. But you see, it's not just like he's just some wise old sage. No, he gives this wisdom, and because he is mighty God, whatever he believes is wise, he enacts, and whatever he enacts, he accomplishes. But you see, he's not just mighty God, because then it would be indiscriminate. And then what does it really matter for you? And I know he's everlasting Father. And so he exercises this wisdom as mighty God For his people, he is everlasting father. He gives it to his people. And what does that give? Well, it gives all kinds of fruits. And the fruit that's going to be highlighted is he gives this peace, this everlasting peace. This is this warrior king born. This is the one you follow. This is the one you wait upon. This is the one you look to this is the one you depend upon. If there is anything that Advent and the Incarnation are instructive about, it is surely this. This God is worth waiting for. Finally, let us look to and rely upon Him. Just look to and rely upon him. There is nothing that is not only impossible for him. There is nothing that is even difficult for him. Nothing's difficult for him. He's mighty God. He'll never be outflanked. He'll never be overcome. He'll never be surprised. He'll never be undone. There'll never be some enemy that just gets a leg up on him, even for a short period of time. He's mighty God. And so you can trust this one. And you can rest in this one. He does all things he desires to do. And He always desires to bless and work for the good of His people. Always. And if you are one of His, you're not somehow outside of that promise. You're not somehow outside of that blessing no matter how hard it has gotten lately. He's mighty God. He was born for you, Isaiah says. quite a wonder isn't it that god would send god and that he would be born for us stephen charnock i'm just going to close with this there are a lot of oh been meditating on a number of them this week and last week i read to you augustine this is one from stephen charnock an old puritan There are so many good ones like this throughout church history, but Charnock said this. Let me just read this to you in closing as he talks about this one born for you, this mighty God. What a wonder is it that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world and yet without any confusion. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief. An infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. Are such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love that they astonish men upon earth and angels in heaven. Astonishing. And it will astonish you for all of eternity. There's no way to get your mind completely around this. And so we will just give him glory and praise unending day after day after day forever in astonishment. Mighty God born for you. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for your exceeding kindness in sending your only beloved Son into this world to live and to suffer and to die at the hands of creatures created in your image for your glory. We might once again enjoy fellowship with you and enjoy your glory forevermore astounding, that mighty God would become flesh. We give you praise, our Lord and our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our one true God in three persons. May this Christmas week bring afresh and anew all of the glories of the incarnation to our minds and our hearts and our very souls. So that we might begin to ascribe you the glory that is due your name. In the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen.